Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter number 10 this morning. Mark chapter number 10. And uh, while you're turning, just uh, a word of reminder. We have uh, we are going to take up a special love offering for our Christian school uh, coming up, Augusta Christian Academy, uh, on March the 10th. We've been previously announcing March the 3rd, uh, but we're going to move that one week to March the 10th uh, just so that we don't have conflicting and competing events on the same Sunday. Uh, so March the 10th, our goal for that day is $400,000. You say, Pastor, that's a lot of money. Yes, it is, uh, but little is much when God is in it. And so we're going to do our part uh, on March the 10th and looking forward to seeing what the Lord uh, will do. And uh, hope that you uh, had a great week. We had our couples retreat this past weekend in Virginia Beach. We had 54 couples from our church uh, that went with us. And uh, Pastor Dean Miller from Front Range Baptist Church in Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, was with us, and so great, great practical lessons, applications, and uh, I am looking forward to applying uh, what I learned this past week, and I know that my wife is looking forward to me applying what I learned this week, uh, so it, uh, it was a great time, and thank you for those who went, who supported, and I'm thankful that our church has a heartbeat for families. And it's a blessing, and so I'm thankful that we get to host that every single year and look forward to. And next year, we've already got 35 couples who have pre-registered for next year, and so we're looking forward to great things next February, uh, the next time, the next time. Uh, Mark chapter 10, imagine what would happen if you came in next Sunday. Maybe mom, dad, uh, your kids, maybe mom, you got the kids, you're wrangling them, and you get to the door, and one of our wonderful doormen says, hey! You can't bring your kids in here. Can you imagine the outcry? Uh, I don't even want to think about the emails that I would get on Monday morning. Uh, do you know what they told me? You know, think about how would that be received and from our church? Uh, how would that be received? How would that make you as a parent feel about your children? Uh, how would that make you feel about this church where they said, no room, you can't come. You can't come in here with your kids. Uh, leave them out. Leave them in the car. You know, turn the windows down. Or, you know, turn the heat on. Whatever. Uh, but how would that make you feel? Well, imagine how these people feel in Mark chapter number ten when they show up to see Jesus. Uh, one of the common practices of Jewish people, it was customary for families to go to the temple for the rabbi to bless their children. So most likely, these families are coming to Jesus hoping to receive that blessing from this Jewish teacher. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 13 says, there, Then were there brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray and bless them. But the disciples rebuked them. The disciples. You remember those guys who spent all that time with Jesus? Who should have known better? They rebuked these people for bringing their children to Jesus. You know, this is going to carry over into the thought about childlike faith, and we'll talk about that, what following Jesus looks like. But it shows us that good intentions don't always lead to good decisions. Good intentions don't always equal good decisions. It is possible to have good intentions and make a bad decision. Now, let, we'll, we won't take testimony time right there, but it, it is possible. So when we see this passage, what does God want us to see here in Mark chapter 10? Let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. Father, we thank you so much for your word. 
Thank you for speaking to our hearts and the music and encouraging us. Lord, thank you for the solid rock, our foundation that we have to stand on. And it's not us working, it's Christ working through us. And Jesus is that firm foundation. And uh, Lord, we understand that. Uh, Lord, we understand that the only word for grace is amazing. And Lord, we desire to know you have a deeper understanding of the relationship that you want to have with us. Lord, please speak to our hearts and show us our greatest need today is you. Lord, for those who may be here or watching online who don't know you as their personal Savior, please help today to be their day of salvation. Help them to know that they need that relationship with you. And Lord, for us individually and collectively, Lord, please show us how we can draw closer to you. And Lord, how that we may have good intentions but, Lord, help us to couple that with good decisions along with good intentions. Help us to follow you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write down, number one, the displeasure. The displeasure. Uh, put yourself in the role of the disciples for a moment. When we read this passage of Scripture, let's look at verse number 13, just for some context. It says that they brought young children to him, they, families, people, brought young children to him, Jesus, that he, Jesus, should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. All right, so you've got Jesus in this place, and you've got the disciples. And put yourself in their position for a moment. They've traveled with Jesus for a few years now. They've seen Jesus do miracles and bless people and heal people and touch people and heal the eyes of the blind and raise the dead and do things that no one else had ever done before. They've seen Jesus do thing after thing after thing that only God can do. They've seen him minister. They've seen him bless. And they knew at the same time that he was fully God while fully man. He was the God man. He did not relinquish any of his Godhead when he came to earth, but did not hold on to that Godhead so tightly that he could not identify himself as a man to understand where we are today. So when we look at who Jesus was, they got to see firsthand who Jesus was, what he was capable of. They saw that he faced hardships, was abused by those other people who were praying for the Messiah to come, yet they would not accept that he was what they were looking for. They saw that, but they also understood while Jesus is fully man, that he got tired from time to time. He needed rest from time to time, just like we do. He needed to be fed from time to time. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He had all of those same feelings like we do. So imagine the disciples saying, hey guys, this is a great opportunity for Jesus to get some R&R. This is a great, let's, let's put up the boundary and let's let Jesus rest. All right, so let's do that. So in a way, the disciples are looking at him coming into this place as a chance for him to rest. You know, if, as a disciple, they were tasked with, let's put up the guardrails, let's make sure that Jesus doesn't get touched, let's make sure that he's not bothered. So what they're doing, good intentions. Hey, let's protect Jesus. But then we see the refusal. In verse 13, And they brought young children to him that he should touch him, and the, his disciples rebuked those. Not just the kids. Hey, get those kids out of here. He rebukes those who brought the kids. They're rebuking everybody. No visitors, nobody allowed, no time. Uh, no, he's, he's resting. Jesus needs to rest, to recharge, to reset. 
Can you blame them for their actions? Uh, you know, can you identify with their actions? Uh, the fact that we, if we were given that exact same opportunity, knowing who Jesus was, would we have done anything different? Would we have said, hey, come back later. Hey, hey uh, set up an appointment. Because Jesus needs to be sharp. He needs to be rested. But how many times have we personally turned people away who need Jesus and they come to us to find him? How many times have we pushed people away? We're tired. And I'm not knocking. Everybody needs rest. Everybody needs a vacation. Everybody needs that time to be able to reset and refocus and and refresh themselves. But sometimes we're guilty of using that I'm tired as an excuse all the time. I'm too tired. I'm too busy. I'm too fill in the blank. That I can't be a blessing. And we might say, well, pastor, I would never do that. If somebody was really desperate in need, I would want to help them. But I would present that we do it most of our lives and we justify it. We call it misplaced priorities. Misplaced priorities. Remember why Jesus came in Mark chapter number 10, verse 45? The Bible says, Jesus speaking, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to earth to minister. So if Jesus came to minister, why are we here on planet earth? Oh, pastor, man, my, I want to be, be able to retire when I'm 50. I want to be able to uh, reset and have a, a rich and healthy life. You know, I want to live right now like no one else. So that Y'all know the speech. Uh, I'm going to live right now like no one else so that one day I can live like no one. And I'm not knocking Dave Ramsey. Uh, but we make that our pursuit. Oh, pastor, man, I, my goal is to have the nicest office at the office. My goal is to have the biggest title and the biggest accolade or the biggest pension or the biggest retirement plan. And we make those things our pursuit at the cost of people. At the cost of not ministering the way that Jesus did. Why does God have us here on planet earth? The only reason that we still exist in this life and in this body is to bring glory to him by pointing others to him. That is the reason that we are here. If we did not exist for that purpose, when we received Christ as our personal Savior, we would have gone straight to heaven. But we are still here for a purpose, and that is to minister to other people. Our job, our objective is to minister. As His hands and feet, we are supposed to be ministers. So how's that working out for you? How are you ministering to other people? By turning people away, they were unknowingly putting their own needs ahead of other people. And we're all guilty of that. From the pastor into the chair, we're all guilty of that. John Wesley said this, Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, and as long as you can. What's interesting is they didn't even ask Jesus for his opinion either. Hey, Jesus, there's some people outside. They're assembling. They're lining up. They've got their kids. Do you want to see? They didn't even ask. They just assumed. Hey, we're going to do our job, and we're going to do it so well that Jesus is going to get what he needs. You be careful when you try to determine what you think God needs. 
Oh, pastor, God needs me. Does he? Wonder what he did before we got here. God doesn't need us, church. God desires to use us. But don't think for one minute that God needs us. He's he's been doing pretty good for thousands of years and eternity before that, all on his own without us. So we look at this refusal. They turn people away, but then look at verse 14, the rebuke. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased. The word displeased here is the word agonicteo, and it means to be very displeased or to be disturbed. This is the only time in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when Jesus got indignant. You think about the disciples rebuke these families, and Jesus turns and rebukes them. What are you thinking? That's the response. What is wrong with you? Is what Jesus is saying. He says in verse number 14. When Jesus saw it he was much displeased. And said unto them. Suffer. Allow the little children to come unto me. And forbid them not. What's wrong with you guys? What's your problem? We want them to come. We want to minister to them. I came for them. I'm going to bleed and die for them. We are not going to turn them away. Jesus is indignant here. The disciples thought that Jesus was far too important to be bothered by these kids. And Jesus thought that small children were too important not to be brought to him. He flipped it around. A child's heart is tender and impressionable. If you don't believe that, you go to a public school and you start seeing when they start teaching them about sex ed. You start talking about a public school when they start talking to them about gender equality. When they start talking to them about same-sex marriage. You see, if, they, if the public school doesn't believe they're young and impressionable. And it is our job to speak truth into children's lives at an early age. That's not the government's job. That's our job. Hey, mom and dad, that's your job at home. It's not your job to bring them to church and have somebody else teach them the gospel. That's your job at home. That's not the pastor's job. That's not Brother Joe's job. And that's not Brother Manny's job. That's not Brother John's job, Brother Chris, Brother Tim. That is your job at home to teach them about Jesus and to impress on their lives the importance of knowing the truth and where to find it. Hey, you cannot expect somebody else to raise your children for you when it comes to spiritual things. That's your role. God has given you that responsibility. And I can promise you, if you don't, somebody in the world will. If you don't do your job well, the world will do it for you. Hey, do you want the world teaching your kids about what marriage and love look like? Do you want the world teaching you what truth looks like, what it sounds like? That there are no absolute truths in our society and we know that we have the truth. Do you want them teaching you, teaching your children some of these things? Do you want them believing that we're a product of our surroundings and not our circumstances and not our choices? Do you want that to be the mentality? We have to do something about it. we got to be involved. 
I'm thankful that we are so big on reaching children and we have programs and processes for teaching children from the time they're in the nursery. We're not just babysitting. We're teaching. We're trying to make sure that we make an impact from an early age. The importance of hearing the truth. Because if we're not teaching, we're not a church. We're not teaching people how to follow Jesus. We are not a church. That's our purpose, is to point people to him. Now, this passage shows us that not only does Jesus love children, but he shows us that children can and do need him. Frederick Douglass said this, It's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. It's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. Psalm 127, verse 3 and 4. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. We think about arrows. You think about shooting a bow, shooting an arrow. You don't just go out in the yard and say, man, I'm going to shoot an arrow straight up. Because you understand what goes up must do what? Come down. Man, I hope my neighbor's not home. You know, uh, maybe that cat or that dog that's annoying is out in the yard. But, you know, hey, I, I'm not going to just go up and shoot an arrow just on a whim. That arrow that gets shot needs to be aimed. It needs to be aimed. Now, I'm not going to shoot this at somebody. All right, but this is, this is purely an example, okay? So I think about, and my wife is already twitching because this, this crossbow cost her a broken thumb. So, uh, but you think about this. An arrow, if I want to shoot this arrow over at Brandon, okay, I'm not just going to, you know, if I want to, here, Brandon, catch, uh, you know, let me load it up first, catch real good. Uh, but all people in that section are going over there, you know, if I'm aiming. But they would move because they understand what we all know. You don't aim that direction by pointing the bow that way. The arrow is going to fly in the direction that it's aimed. Do you realize that this is the principle of parenting in our society? I want them to go towards Jesus, so I'm going to point them that way. That's the, that's the mentality of the average Christian family. I'm going to live my life however I want to and hope and pray that my kids turn out right. Can I just be very blunt and Georgia style tell you it ain't going to happen? It ain't going to happen. Because our arrows will fly in the direction that they're pointed. If you want your children to have a love and a hunger for Jesus, you need to aim them that direction. And that means, mom and dad, you need to have a hunger and a desire for Jesus. That means you need to point them in the direction that you want them to go. And you need to aim them that way by showing them that is the way we're going as a family. That's what Joshua meant at the end of his life when he said, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Because Joshua had lived his life pointing in the right direction. That's why he could say at the end of his life, we will serve the Lord because I have lived an example of following the Lord. I have taught and trained. That's the direction that we're going. That's how he was pointing his bow and arrow. I am pointing them. Hey, mom and dad, are you pointing in the right direction? Do you have your priorities aimed in the right direction? I don't think it's fair to believe that if you, read your, if you don't read your Bible, that you should tell your kids to read theirs. 
That's not fair. That's hypocrisy. I remember, never forget when I was a kid, we had this man in our church. He's dead now. And his name was Elmer. Elmer, I was growing up. I was 10 or 11 years, I was 11 or 12 years old. And Elmer smoked cigars all the time, all the time. And so I remember the day that Elmer looked at me holding a cigar in his hand and said, Boy, I can't even do it. I've never held one. Uh, Boy, don't you ever do this. What a great example. But you know that's a problem in the home, right? Don't you do what I'm getting ready to do. Hey, it could look like this. It could look like this. It could look like this. Hey, don't you do what I'm going to do. The direction that you point those arrows is the direction that they're flying. If you teach them, mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, that it's okay to do certain things, they're going to grow up believing that that's okay. If you give them an example to follow, that they don't have to love Jesus, they don't have to follow Jesus, and you wake up one day and they don't have a desire, guess what? You pointed them in that direction. This is not a slap in the face. This is a challenge and a charge for our people to understand it's time to get real and get serious. You think the world is flittering around in this regard with our kids? There is a purpose. There is a design and a plan by Satan himself to disrupt and destroy your family. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? You can't just sit idly by and watch it happen. Do something. Do something. Jesus is letting them know that the kingdom of heaven is made up of childlike faith. Not the kingdom of heaven is all kids, but it's childlike faith. But it's also not an accident. This incident happens right after Jesus talks about divorce. Divorce is a disruptor of the home. It destroys families and lives. And we have to protect the family at all costs. The strength of the church is deeply connected to strong families. You and I need to do whatever we have to do to keep our family unit strong and connected. Because Satan is out to destroy your family, whether you see it or not. Whether you realize it or not, he's coming. He is on the warpath. We just had our couples retreat this past week. And we invest heavily at our church into marriages because we see the value in a strong home. The strength of the church is deeply connected to the strength of the home. And we have to, at all costs, be ready for his attacks. We see the refusal. We see the rebuke. And then thirdly, we see the reception. Look at verse 15 and 16. Verily, Jesus speaking, I say unto you, truthfully I speak unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. If we're going to invest in his work, it has to be done with the mindset That people have to come to him as a child. Uh, Let me just say this very quickly and, and I'll move forward. We need to invest young. Teach early. We have to. We have to. Hey, they're not the next generation. They're the now generation. There's a reason that our kids... There is no age limit on service for the king, by the way. There were kings in the Old Testament who were kids. Had no idea 
what to do. Had advisors, mentors who came alongside them and showed them this is the way of the Lord. Follow ye in it. They had people who walked alongside them and showed them this is the way that we need to go. And it is vital for us as a church family to see kids not as the next generation but the now generation. Hey, they can serve the Lord now. They can be used now. They don't have to wait till they graduate high school and all of a sudden, ta-da, this shining moment, the light bulb comes on. Now I can serve Jesus. They can start early. The younger, the better. I understand the whole principle of, you know, we need a maturity. I get all that. But what I'm saying is we need kids to see the importance of following Jesus now, not later. Now, right now. We have to have faith of a child. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is made up of that little childlike faith, that easy trust in the Lord. You ever come around, you got your kids were at home, and maybe you're coming around the corner of the kitchen, and you've got hands full, dishes, you're cleaning the table, and you come around the corner, and your kid's standing on the kitchen counter and says, Hey, Dad, catch! And you got to make that choice. Do I drop all Mama's dishes and make her mad, or do I catch the kid that she birthed in the world you know which which one do I do easy childlike faith there were a day when you could tell your kids anything and they would believe you you know did you know that mom has purple boogers what there was no hesitation there was no doubt they just believed they believed anything you said No matter what it was, how big, how unbelievable it was, they believed you. Childlike faith. You know, that's the same faith that we ought to have when God the Father speaks to us. No matter how unbelievable it sounds, that's the truth. Because our Father doesn't lie. And when He speaks, we listen and we obey. Because it's childlike faith. Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 3 and 4, He said, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter in the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. A child looks at life differently than we do. They don't analyze as much as we do. Some things we just accept by faith. Pastor, did God really create the earth in six days? Absolutely. How do you know? Faith. Because his word says so and he doesn't lie. So I know that it happened that way. It's faith. Well, pastor, how do you, were you there knowing you weren't either? It's faith. We trust him by faith. And believers should look at the world differently because of who our dad is. We trust him. And we need to be prepared for whatever comes our way from the enemy. Be ready. As these children are looking on, listening in, Jesus is... Showing them how he feels about them. It says in verse number 16, he put his hands on them and blessed them. I wonder how often we bless our own children. There are people in this room, man, it still does your heart good to hear your mom and dad from time to time say, hey, I'm proud of you, I love you. There are some people in this room, you would love to hear that. And you know because of death that it will never happen. You miss it. You would love to hear that voice one more time. Because you know the value of it. Hey, that value, while you might not, you may see it right now as a grown-up, 
Don't ever discount the value of speaking that blessing to your children. No matter how old they are. Let them hear it early and often that you're proud of them. Oh, Pastor, I don't always like the things that they do. Hey, don't make your love for them hinge on what they do. Because God doesn't do that with us. God loves us. You can't do anything to make God love you more, and you can't do anything to make God love you any less. And that's the way that we should feel about our kids. And even if you don't have children, maybe your grandma, your grandpa, hey, speak that blessing into your grandchildren. Speak that blessing. That doesn't mean that you have to walk up to kids as they're walking down the hallway today and say, let me put my hands on your head and bless you. And that's not what I'm talking about. Don't be weird about it. But as the hands and feet of Jesus, do your kids receive the blessing from you? That blessing in the Old Testament was a major deal. It was a big deal. Do they feel that, your kids feel that warm embrace or do they feel a stiff hand of rebuke? Do they see Jesus' tenderness coming from you or do they see your harshness? Do they hear those tender words? Remember the story of Jacob and Esau and their father Isaac who was blind? Remember Jacob was the supplanter, the deceiver, the younger son. Esau was the older son. In Jewish culture, the oldest son was entitled to the blessing. He was entitled to double the inheritance of whatever the father had, double what everybody else was going to get in the family. It was a blessing. It was a figurative and literal showing of passing the baton from the father and the parents to the oldest son. It was a big deal. So when that father would speak those words of blessing, that was something that was expected, but it was also something that was anticipated. Hey, I'm looking forward to the day when I hear that blessing. So with that backdrop, you remember the story, Jacob and Esau? Esau gets swindled by his younger brother Jacob, and Jacob sneaks in, takes the blessing from his blind father that was supposed to be for Esau. If you don't think it was a big deal and the blessing in their culture, look how Esau responded in Genesis 27, 34 when he heard that his brother had deceived his father. It says, And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with a great and exceeding bitter cry and said unto his father, Bless me, even me also. He was disrupted by the fact that he had lost Something that was precious. Hey, your children need and crave your blessing, mom and dad. Are they hearing it? Are they hearing it from you? We see the displeasure, and then we see, lastly this morning, the discussion. Verse 17 through 22, Jesus taught hard truths on divorce. He's rebuked disciples, given a clear picture of who can come to him for redemption. And as he's walking out of town, he encounters a young man who is described in Luke chapter 18 as being very rich. This is a young man who had everything. In life, except Jesus. And he comes to Jesus asking a question. And when we see the question, we see how far he is from following Jesus. We see the request in verse 17. It says, when he was gone forth in the way, there came one running, kneeled to him, and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? As we talked about last week, wording in the Bible is vital. Look what he says in verse 17. He asked Jesus, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He calls Jesus good master. 
It's the same title that they would give to the rabbis in the temple. It's the didaskalos, the Greek word. Honorable teacher, rabbi, instructor. He saw Jesus as someone who is a qualified teacher, who was someone who taught good things. But was there more than that? Was that all that Jesus was to this young man? Were those his limitations? He was most likely, he had most likely inherited his wealth from a deceased family member, a parent, or parents. Because in their culture, you didn't get this kind of wealth and be described as rich unless you had inherited it. It was gifted to you. But look at the oxymoron. He says, what can I do that I may inherit eternal life? What can I do so that you will give? What can I do so that you will give freely? Here's the problem. He flings himself at Jesus' feet and says, tell me what I can do that I can earn what you're offering. Here's the bottom line. An inheritance is a gift. It's not earned. Just like salvation is a gift and it can't be earned. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5 says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Salvation isn't something you can do. It's something he already did. It's not something you achieve. It's something that we receive by faith, freely given to everyone who calls on him. D.L. Moody said, The thief on the cross had nails through both hands so that he could not work, and a nail through each foot so that he could not run errands for the Lord. He could not lift a hand or a foot toward his salvation, and yet Christ offered him the gift of God, and he took it. Christ threw him a passport, and he took him to paradise. You think about it, it's a gift. The only thing that you and I can do is come to him in faith, trusting him. That's all we can do. You can't earn it, you can't buy it, you can't afford it. That's the truth. We can't afford it. If we could pay for it, we couldn't buy it but we can receive it as a gift. We see the response in verse 18 through 20. Jesus speaks and clarifies, quantifies what he says, just bringing him back to the original statement. He said, what is it? Why would you call me good? There's only one good, and that's God. And he's going to ask him about the commandments. Verse 19, thou knowest the commandments. Adultery, kill, steal, false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And verse 20, he answered and said to him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. He's trying to flatter Jesus by calling him good. But Jesus is trying to see, do you identify me as God, not good? Is there a difference? And the only way that we can come to Jesus for salvation is to identify him as God. He is God in the flesh. Peter said, Matthew 16, 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this man was simply saying that Jesus was another good thing in my life. He wanted to put Jesus on the shelf right along with all the things that he had accomplished. See, when you come to Jesus for salvation, it's Jesus plus nothing minus nothing. It's only Jesus. It's not Jesus plus all the things that you can do. It's only Jesus. And there will not be one person in heaven one day who got there without going through Jesus. He is the only way to heaven. The only way. This man did not see himself as a sinner in need of a Savior. 
Romans chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, there's none that understandeth, none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Jesus leaned in all the commandments and he had done all of them. As far as his relationship with people, uh, other people, it was stellar. He had a good standing. He had a good relationship with his family. He was a good person and that was his problem. He was trying to add Jesus to his goodness. And Jesus doesn't add himself to our goodness. You know why? Because we're not good. We're not good. Remember, all of our righteousnesses are filthy rags. We're not good. He's good, not us. And you can never be good enough to gain heaven's favor. It doesn't work. And that leads to, lastly, the regret. Verse 21 and 22 says, then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. I love that. Jesus looked through all of the goodness in his eyes, the self-righteousness, and said, I'm going to love him anyway. You know, we're supposed to be like Jesus, and we're supposed to love other people who think that they're good enough, who see themselves as not having a problem, who see themselves as having it all figured out, who see themselves as not needing Jesus, we're supposed to love those people too. Not just the people that it's easy to love, not those people who love you back, but everybody. We're supposed to love every person, even those people who criticize your faith, even those people who don't even believe the same God that we claim to believe. Even those people who don't like the fact that you're from America. I know we've got an election coming up. But we already have a king, so it doesn't really matter. We'll talk more about that one later. Uh, look at verse 21. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, Give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. What a challenge. Hey, this guy had everything. And Jesus said, you only need to do one thing. You just need to take everything else you have that is distracting you from picking up your cross and following me. So once you go and do that, you come back, and then you can follow me. What? This guy has everything, but not the most important thing. And Jesus gives us exactly what we need to know. The pursuit of Christ is not a pursuit of things. It's the pursuit of a person. It's a relationship with Jesus. It's not religion. It's a relationship. It's not stuff. It's not a status, it's a savior. It's coming to him and him alone. Jesus said, sell everything you have so that you can be freed up to follow me. Hey church, this morning, what is it in your life that's getting in the way of you following Jesus? Because once you determine what that is, you need to get rid of it so that you can pursue Christ. I'm not saying that you have to be destitute. I'm not saying that you have to live like a hermit. I'm not saying that you have to live this life, be homeless and live out of a cardboard box. But what is it that is getting in the way of pursuing Christ? That needs to be removed. 
A.W. Tozer said, If I am going to wholly follow the Lord, I must forsake everything else there is con- that is contrary to Him. If there's something in our life that's getting in the way, it's got to be gone for us to follow Him. He had elevated His, wor- or his wealth to a place of worship. He came to the person who could give him something more valuable. And he wouldn't receive it. Mark chapter 8 verse 36. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The man was guilty of even breaking the first commandment. When Moses said in Exodus 20 verse 3. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. He was worshiping money. That was his God. And Jesus said you have to choose See, the choice was simple, but it wasn't an easy choice. It's the same way with following Jesus today. It's a simple choice, but it's not an easy choice. And think about Jesus' teaching when he said, No man goes and builds a house without first counting the cost. You're not going to follow Jesus without thinking about, What's that going to cost me? It's an easy decision, but it's a difficult one. And Jesus said, this is what you need to do. And look at verse 22. Here's the end result. And he was sad at that saying. Eternal life wasn't appealing anymore. And I don't know if I really want that. If I have to give everything else up that I've accumulated, I'm not sure that I want to follow you. I'm not sure that I can afford that. might be too much. There was no rebuttal, no other offers. There was no contingency plan only to walk away grieved that the price was too much to follow Jesus. Remember when Jesus spoke to the disciples in John 6, 66? From that time, many of his disciples went back, walked no more with him, then said, Jesus, unto the twelve, will you also go away? I love the words of Peter. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. What did this man want when he came to Jesus, this rich young ruler? He said, what can I do that I will inherit eternal life? And Peter said, Lord, if we have you, we have eternal life. John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. These things are written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know you have eternal life. And that life is found in his son. If you have Jesus, you have eternal life. So this morning, do you have Jesus? Are you following him. Is there anything getting in the way? Jesus is still the only way. And the main purpose of our life is to bring him glory by following him and pointing others to him. This man had good intentions. But as we all know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Hey, I, I wanted to. I tried. I had good intentions. But not a good decision. And this man lost an opportunity to have eternal life because he wouldn't let go of something else. Hey, today, church, if you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to require you to let go of some things. It might mean your dream, your ambition, your desire. It may just be giving up your pride. It may just be giving up something simple that you say, man, I'm holding on to this so tight, but... Holding on to that is keeping you from following Jesus. Hey, what is it that's holding you back from following Jesus? Because if he speaks, you ought to be ready to go. But can you? 
Is something holding you back from following him? This man lost out. Hey, don't be like that guy. Be like the man who says, it doesn't matter what it is, I'm willing to pay the cost because I know what I get in return. Do you know how much value he brings to the table when you choose to follow him? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Let me ask you this morning, do you know that you're following Jesus? Has there been a time in your life where you've trusted him as your personal savior? Have you committed your life to him? Maybe you're here this morning and you don't have that settled. There's never been a time when you can recall where you've turned your life over to him, where you've trusted him, where you've accepted his free gift of salvation. And that's not a magical, mystical experience, by the way. That's just simply acknowledging that you need him. That's coming to a realization that you're lost without him. And you have a need that only he can meet. And it's asking him, trusting him to meet that need for your life. The Bible says we're all sinners. We're all in need of a Savior. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of our sin, to be our substitute. But you don't get that by default. You receive Christ by coming to him in faith and trusting him. And maybe this morning that's your need and you would simply ask him to do what he's offered. You would trust him to save you from your sin. Maybe your need is something else. Maybe you know that you're saved. There's been a time in your life where you've trusted him, but you're not following him. You're holding on to other things tighter than you are to Jesus. Maybe that's your need today. Would you simply make a decision this morning to let that go so that you can take up that cross and follow him? That cross is not meant to be picked up and put down after a couple steps. It's meant to be a decision you make every single day. I'm going to continue to follow Jesus. I'm going to continue to pursue him. Are you doing that? Can you look at your life right now today and say, I am a follower of Jesus based on the decisions I'm making, based on the direction that I'm going? Is that your life? If it's not, man, talk to him about it. He's already talking to your heart about it. He's already knocking on your heart's door. Why not answer the door and follow him? Maybe you need to come to the altar and pray. Maybe you need to talk to a personal worker. Our personal workers are in the back and would love to pray with you. If you need someone to talk to you, pray with you, help you make that decision. Maybe you know what your need is and you would write that down on a card that's in front of you. I I made a decision today. You would turn that in, have someone pray with you encourage you. Whatever your need is, we want to try and help you. We, our goal is to help you follow him, to help you walk with him. It's the greatest pursuit and the greatest objective of our lives is to follow Jesus. I hope that you can say that in your life if you can. Hey, talk to him today. We'll be honored to help you, whatever you need. Father, please bless our time of invitation and reflection. Please help us to see the severity and seriousness of following you. Lord, we've come too far to play games. Or it's time for us to get serious in how we follow you, the fact that we are following you. Lord, help us not to mess around, but Lord, help us to pursue you, to know you. We know that you want to do a work in us. Help us to submit to your leading. 
your authority in our lives. Please bless this time. If there's someone here that doesn't know you as their personal Savior, please draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us, please. Brother Tim's going to lead us in that song, Yet Not I, But Christ in Me. If you need to pray with someone, they're in the back. Come kneel at the altar. Do what God wants you to do this morning as we sing.